Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me up by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Joseph, that is, to a brain, and all the Israelites associated with him. Join them together into one stick, so they will become one in your hand. When your people ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on, and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone, I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over them, and there will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or any other offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. 
They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy, but my sanctuary is among them forever. Why don't we pray as we begin? We've already prayed, but let's. Uh, please do teach our hearts tonight by this passage. Pray that you would tell us more about who you are and uh, that we would more shape our lives around who you would have us be. We pray in Jesus' name. Who gets credit in your life? Lots of your students. Who gets credit when you graduate? Uh, is it your parents, your family, uh, people who supported you through school? Is it your teachers, lecturers? Uh, are you going to thank them, give them the credit when you when you graduate? Or you're doing the work. Uh, are you going to? Is it going to be you? Do you get the credit for when you graduate? The answer is really D, all of the above, isn't it? It's kind of, everyone's involved in uh, something like uh, finishing uni. Uh, Life is always a a combined effort. What about when it comes to us and God? In terms of, if, if you are someone who is a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, you have a relationship with God, who gets credit for that? Is it your family or your church, people who nurtured your faith? Is it your pastor? Uh, does he get the credit? Uh, is it God? Is it, is it you? Uh, and there's lots of ways you can answer that question, isn't there? Uh, but Ezekiel 37 has one important theological answer that it wants to give us. One important theological answer to that question. Who gets credit for your relationship with God? And so tonight we're going to look at these two visions in Ezekiel 37 and think about how we can talk about our relationship with God so that credit goes where it deserves. So we're going to think about that tonight. Uh, So firstly, the first vision. The first vision is a very famous one, the Valley of Dry Bones. Uh, It's like there's a scene of, uh, of a huge battle, thousands dead, and only it's 50 years on, 100 years down the track, and all that's left are bones, bleached dry, as far as the eye can see. Uh, It's like those horrific pictures you see when they they dig up mass grave sites and there's just bones sticking up out of the earth. That's that's the scene that Ezekiel comes upon, that God shows him. And verse 2 tells us that God leads Ezekiel back and forth among the bones on this terrible inspection of them, uh, just to confirm that there is nothing alive here. There's not even a rotting corpse that you might try and revive. They're just bones. And we're told that they're very dry. And you know that a doctor would be no help in this situation. If you 
if you're there and you have one of those machines, which you go, clear. That, what, what good is it? They're just bones. It's completely hopeless. Absolute death as far as the eye can see. And the Lord asks Ezekiel a strange question. Verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? And the answer is obvious, no, uh, they can't. Uh, except for who's asking the question. It's the Lord, the Creator. And so Ezekiel can't say yes, because that's ridiculous, but he can't say no either, uh, because God is asking. And so he gives the only right answer, which is, it's up to you. Sovereign Lord, you alone know. See, confronted with this vision, this uh, valley of dry bones, he knows that only God can do anything about this situation. Only God can do anything. And so uh, he tells Ezekiel to speak to them. Now, if you remember back to the start of Ezekiel, uh, he's told that being a prophet would be hard, that the people would be hard-hearted and they wouldn't listen. Uh, but now he's talking to bones and it's, it's patently ridiculous. Uh, this morning over breakfast, uh, our family were reading this passage in preparation for hearing it uh, at church and uh, Kipling, my six-year-old son, interrupted me and he, at this point and he said, Dad, this doesn't make sense. Uh, why is he talking to bones? Bones don't have ears. Uh, and he's, he just, he got it exactly right. That it, it is, it's ridiculous at this point. He's speaking to bones. Uh, but he's speaking the word of the Lord to them. And verse 6, the Lord says, I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And if that happens, then you will know that he is the Lord. And the freakiest thing happens. It's like that scene in Jurassic Park, very famous one, where uh, there's the glass of water and it just starts rippling and then you hear the thud in the distance and before you see anything, you know that something's coming. And uh, that's what happens here in this scene, that Ezekiel doesn't see anything, he doesn't see the bones moving, he just hears the rattling sound. And uh, he looks around and the bones start coming together, bone to bone, and he sees flesh and tendons and skin uh, come and cover them. And it's hard to imagine which scene is worse, the, the valley of dry bones or the valley of cadavers that is now lying in front of him. Uh, but God isn't finished, is he? Uh, when God creates Adam, the first man, uh, we're told that he forms him from the dust of the ground, but then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, it says in Genesis. And the man becomes a living being. And it's exactly the same thing here in Ezekiel. Uh, read with me from verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. That's what it takes. It takes the breath of God, the Spirit of God, 
to breathe life into people and to take them from, from death into living beings, from bones, from nothing, into being alive again. So what's this vision about? It feels like it's talking about resurrection, doesn't it? Uh, that one day uh, God will do that to our lifeless bodies. He'll raise us up after we die. Uh, but have a look at uh, the explanation that's there in the passage in verses 11 to 14. This is what uh, it says the vision means. Verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Uh, see, uh, God is saying that this vision is a picture of what Israel are already saying about themselves because of the exile. They're saying our bones are dried up, we're cut off. We're cut off from the land. They've been cut off from their home. Jerusalem has been overtaken and the temple's been destroyed and their hope's gone and they're off in Babylon and the exile is like death to them. It's like being dead. And so this vision is actually a promise that God is going to bring them back, back into the land, uh, back to where their life is. Have a look at verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And then down in verse 14, I'll put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. It's about coming back to the land. For God's people to go uh, from exile in Babylon uh, back to the land is, is like coming back from the dead, coming back to life. Because the land is where God's blessing is. Uh, that's where they have relationship with God. Uh, some of you are from the country and it, it's a bit like that, isn't it? You, you go home, back to your hometown, and that's where your relationships are. Um, there's lots of country students who, you know, can't wait for exams to be finished because it's so great to go home to that place of relationship. And it doesn't, they won't always say that living in Perth is like death to them. Um, but, you know, for some... And so, so God has promised this restored relationship when he uh, brings them back out of exile. And that's what we see in the second vision. So we're on to the second vision. Uh, it, the second vision is a vision of two bits of wood. And God tells Ezekiel uh, to write on one belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him, and then on the other belonging to Joseph, that is Ephraim, and all the Israelites associated with him. And then he's told, verse 17, join them together into one stick so they will become one in your hand. Now, to understand this, you need to know a bit of Israel's history. I go back 500 years from Ezekiel and uh, King Solomon was ruling a, really a glorious kingdom. The, the city of Jerusalem was famous, the temple was built, uh, but... Uh, he wasn't very good at succession planning and he'd also wandered away from God towards other gods. And so God brought his judgment on the nation. And so after he died, there was a civil war and the nation was split in half, uh, north and south, with Ephraim, uh, the, 
the tribe, the, the biggest one in the north, and then uh, Judah being the main tribe in the south. And so God tells Ezekiel to write those two names down on two sticks of wood, and they will become one in my hand. And you can see the explanation is quite simple at this point. God's going to bring them back together, the, the whole nation, uh, together, one, under one king. And see, it's all about restoring his relationship with them. Have a look down in the passage, uh, down at verse 26. This is what God said he says he's going to do. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. And here it is. I will be their God and they will be my people. From this divided, exiled people, God promises to make this one nation, a people at peace with him, who obey his law and honour him, and they're going to have this, this beautiful marriage covenant, and he's going to be with them forever. Israel is going to go from the Valley of Dry Bones in Babylon to, it says, the mountains of Israel in verse 22 there. Uh, it's a little bit, bit like, uh, you might remember the story a few years back, uh, in 2010, there was a mine disaster in Chile. If you want to know all the details, talk to uh, Constanza and Keno. These guys are full bottle on this, I'm sure. Um, so there was a mine disaster in Chile. Uh, 33 miners were trapped about 700 metres underground. And uh, the rescue took months. If you remember, it was in the news for ages because uh, they survived 69 days underground, uh, this big group of them, before they came up. And the scenes afterwards, after they came up from being so far under the ground, uh, just the joy and the celebration of being reunited with families, almost as if they were back from the dead. And it's that kind of a picture that uh, Ezekiel 37 is painting. God's people are, are brought back from the dead for relationship with him. And uh, that does happen. If you look through Israel's history in a small way, uh, in the history of Israel, they do go back to the land and they do rebuild the temple. But it's actually only a small thing. Uh, these, these promises are enormous. Uh, they're pointing beyond just what happens to Israel to a worldwide thing. Some, just a picture of how God works for his whole world. Ezekiel 37 is actually a small picture of a much bigger story because the whole Bible is a story of exile and restoration. The whole Bible is a story of exile and restoration. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me back to the very start, to Genesis. It'll help to do some flicking at this point. So in Genesis, God creates the man and the woman uh, in his image and he places them in the Garden of Eden. And it's a place full of life and food and blessing. And it's a place of relationship. It's a place where God says, uh, the Bible says that God walks with them in the cool of the evening. And it's, it's a little bit like what the land was meant to be for Israel. 
But if you know the, the story of Genesis, you know that the man and the woman disobey God and they break that relationship with him. And the consequence is exile. So have a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. We'll read a couple of verses. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. See, they're banished sent away from this place of God's blessing. And it's like the valley of dry bones. They're they're cut off and there's no way back to this place of blessing. No way back to God's land. And the Bible says that's what we're all like. That's the state of all humanity that follows Adam and Eve. Turn with me now, if we flick forward uh, to the New Testament... We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. If your Bible is roughly my fatness, I'm on page 800 for what it's worth. So the, the whole Bible is a story of exile and restoration. And so we come to the New Testament and you see that same exile is still in place. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then further down at the end of verse 3. We were by nature deserving of wrath. So the point, we're, we're dead. It's like the valley of dry bones all over again. Cut off from God. Facing his wrath. In exile. It's the exile of the whole world. The whole world exiled from God. Now, you might think, what's the problem? It doesn't feel like the world is exiled from God. That doesn't... It's it's not what it feels like. But I think we are. I think you just need to look at the confusion around who God is. Some people think there's lots of gods. Some people think there's no God. Some people think that the, the earth is a God. Some people think that they're... God. And everyone has a different opinion about who God is. And we're we're not really very close to this loving, intimate relationship with God that is, is pictured in the Garden of Eden or in the promises of Ezekiel 37. And it's because the world's in exile. And to come back from that is like dry bones coming back to life. But that's what Ephesians 2 goes on to explain. It goes on to say that that is exactly what God has done. It's how God worked uh, in this vision and it's exactly what he's done in Christ. If you keep reading in Ephesians 2 uh, from verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. See, God has done what only God can do. 
Only God can make dead people alive again. To take people who are under his wrath, facing his anger, and breathe life into them. So they uh, come alive, living beings, for a relationship with him. And do you see that? Uh, It's for that restored relationship in verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Seated us with him at God's right hand in Christ. He's, He's given us new life and restored us for that relationship with him. And if that's the case, if God has done all that from death, then all of the credit, 100% of the credit, needs to go to him for what he's done. And you see that back in Ezekiel. You don't need to turn there. Um, Yeah. But if you go back to Ezekiel, what we're going to see is the same phrase that we saw last week, uh, which is that repeated phrase, then you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, See, the reason for God doing this is for his fame, that people will know that he is the Lord. Uh, It's there in verse 6, it's there in verse 13, it's there in verse 14, uh, the same phrase over and over. And then in verse 28, I'll read it out. Uh, Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. See, when God does this, it's for his fame that people will know he is the Lord. And that's, that's the point. All of Ezekiel 37, all the credit goes to God. It starts with these dead, lifeless, dry bones and it finishes with them alive, uh, reunited and uh, filled with the blessings of living with God. But it's only by God's Spirit that that happens. And so... The point is that all credit goes to God. Now that has some implications for us. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, uh, then it's going to tell you something important about how you find your way back to God. Uh, You're not going to find your way back to God uh, just by your own efforts. Um, If it's true that you're effectively dead, dry bones without God stepping in, uh, then all the investigating in the world isn't going to do what needs to happen. Uh, If you are investigating Jesus, uh, that's great, keep it up, keep going with it, Uh, but that won't make you alive. You're going to have to pray. You'll need God to work in you. If you want to come back to God, to come out of this exile that we're all in, then you need to ask God to breathe his spirit in you and make you alive. And the good news is that he loves doing that. That's what God always does. And if a Christian friend has brought you along tonight, that's exactly what God has done for them. Uh, If you're a Christian tonight, uh, I think that we need to get better at giving credit where credit is due. Now, you might not be so bold as to take credit for God's work straight up. Uh, God didn't save me, I saved myself. I hope you're not saying that. Uh, But I think we do give the impression uh, that some of the credit goes elsewhere. Uh, If we don't uh, talk about 
God's work in our lives, if we don't talk theologically about our lives. If someone asks you, uh, how did you become a Christian? I think, this is at least my tendency, I think we in general tend to say, well, I went to youth group and my leader challenged me to see, uh, to find out about God and I gave my life to Jesus. And that's true at one level, but I is the subject of all of those statements. I did this, my youth group leader did this, uh, my pastor said this. And I don't think that we give God the credit he deserves. If we were really dead, dry bones, and God made us alive, then let's find some ways to say that. Now, it feels strange if someone says, how did you become a Christian? If your answer says, well, to start with, I was like dried up bones. That You don't have to lead with that. But I think we do need to say something like, well, you know, in terms of me and God, I was as good as dead. I think if we get better at talking about our sin and our hopelessness without God's intervention, then more credit will go to God where it's due. That it's about Him and His work. It's about the Spirit's work in us and not uh, just about the pragmatics of the situation. I think we can get better at uh, pulling the curtain back and talking about the theological realities of life instead of just the practicalities, that effectively uh, we were dead because of the way we treated God, part of a world that had wandered from God and was in exile under his anger. We need to get better at talking about that. We need to be able to say, my name's Jeff, and I was dead to God, but he breathed his spirit in me, and now I have an unbreakable relationship of peace with him because of what Jesus has done. Why don't we pray? Father God, please teach our hearts what it means that we were once dead in sin and that you have made us alive with Christ. We thank you so much for him and what you have done in him. And we pray that 100% of the credit would go to you for your amazing grace and deep love shown to us in your son. Amen.